When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello all and welcome to Minnesota's Most Notorious, where blood runs cold. I'm Eric Rivenis. Well, this is a special episode for me. For those of you who listen to my Most Notorious podcast, you know I do lots and lots of interviews and they're always nonfiction books. I've never done a novel before. But there is a book that's very special to me, a book that was pivotal in my early life. And it's a book called St. Mud, a novel of gangsters and saints, written by a man by the name of Steve Thayer. And this is my interview with him. A couple of things about this interview. First of all, I didn't get my audio settings quite right, so it sounds a little bit different than it normally does. Still clear, but a little bit different. That's one. Number two, as you'll soon hear (laughs) from my voice, I kind of fanboyed a little bit with Steve. And I'm not quite as composed and measured as I usually am on these interviews. (laughs) But that's okay, right? But hopefully you don't mind. It was a great joy talking to Steve about this book. And I'm excited to share this episode with you. So here it goes. I hope you like it. So I'm I'm so pleased to be talking to Steve Thayer. He he's the author of many many wonderful books, uh, including The Weatherman, Silent Snow, and The Leper. But the one I'm eager to talk to him about today is called Saint Mud, one of the truly iconic modern Minnesota novels. Uh, a must read for everyone listening. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you, Eric. Before I ask you any questions, a little bit about my own personal experience with Saint Mud. Okay. I was just a kid out of college in 1994 trying to figure out what to do with my history degree when when I stumbled on two things, a local cable access show called St. Paul Gangster Days and your novel, St. Mud. Paul McAbee's book hadn't been released yet, but your book played a huge role in me starting the St. Paul Gangster Tours. So I appreciate it so much, and I I personally put your your novel on a pedestal still to this day. (laughs) Well, thank you. You're welcome. So what what inspired you to to write a book about 1930s 
gangsters in St. Paul? Well, I had just moved back from California. I went out there to be a movie star, and that didn't work out, you know. So uh, I came back here in, what, 81, 82 with my tail between my legs. And uh, I was, uh, you know, I can't be an actor. Maybe I can be a writer, you know. Uh, Back then, the books I was reading were uh, historical novels. They seemed to, somehow, they became my favorite, you know. Uh, Shogun by James Clavell, Taipan by James Clavell, uh, uh, Exodus, the Leon Urey's Trinity about Ireland, uh, even uh, Colleen McCullough's The Thornbirds about Australia. I didn't think I could do anything on that scale, but I thought maybe I could do something on a more local scale, you know, just keep it focused there. Anyway, I was working on a parking ramp downtown St. Paul there, and uh, at lunchtime I walked up to the Landmark Center, and they had... Uh, they had a display about the old gangster days, which I had grown up hearing about. And I went through the displays, and it didn't have, it's just, it had a lot of photographs, and it had little captions underneath it. But nothing ever said why they came here, how long they stayed, or how they got cleaned up, or anything like that. And uh, that's when I got interested in tackling the subject of Minnesota's gangster days. And I went back to my little parking booth, and uh, I wrote the first line of the book just kind of as a lark in the first scene, which is a sex scene in front of the St. Paul Cathedral. And uh, it just sat in my notebook there for a couple of weeks there before I uh, started putting it as a novel together. And then uh, I started going up to the old historical society next to the Capitol building. Mm-hmm. How do you, I'm sure you remember that one. Sure. But back in those days, the old uh, St. Paul Daily News, it went out of business years ago, the Pioneer Press bought it, but back in uh, those days, it hadn't been put on microfilm yet. So I could go in and they give you these big plat books that had the, the newspaper inside it, the actual newspaper, old yellowing newspapers, and just flip through the pages. And I'd just sit there and read the morning paper from 1932 and then, you know, 1933 and then 1934. And I just kept doing that for years, you know, just reading the newspaper like I was reading the morning paper, even some of the the, the comic strips, I got involved in those. You know, I can't wait to see what happens tomorrow. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was really involving. But the thing is, Eric, when you're doing that kind of research, not only are you finding out what happened in the gangster days, you're picking up these incredible details about life on the streets in St. Paul, stories about the streetcars and where these old saloons are located and uh, all, all the constructions and the politics of the day and, it was fascinating, like I said. I'm really glad. Like I said, today everything's on microfilm, but I'm really glad I had access to those old newspapers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that must have been quite an experience, actually, being able to to have that tangible, physical touch to the the newspapers right. makes it a lot more real. Um, so you actually wrote this book while you were working as a parking attendant, right? Yeah, I worked at the. Uh... I think it's called Securia now. Back then it was Minnesota Mutual parking ramp down at was it 6th and Jackson Street there. And it's what you call a 9 to 5 ramp because it's Minnesota. They all come in at 9 o'clock in the morning and they all go out at 5 o'clock in the evening. So if you're the attendant, you pretty much just sit there, you know. We have every once in a while visitors come in and out, but uh, it was not a busy ramp like some of these you see. So I just sat in my booth and I worked for the Loop Parking Company and they were very supportive of me. You know, I told them what I was doing and... Uh, I'd sit in my little parking booth and I'd write scenes on a yellow legal pad there and I'd go home right and put them on my computer and, you know, 
days off, go up to the historical society and go through more newspapers. And uh, then I turn to maps. I get these big plat maps from the historical society. And then they have uh, they have a photo collection. They call them street scenes. So you could get seven corners, 1930s, and they'll pull up photographs from them. So you had all this collection of these photographs. And the most fascinating thing about the photographs from the gangster days, in almost every photograph, Eric, it was the streetcars. Yeah. Yeah. When you're doing historical research, what you want to look for, what is in this picture that's not here today? That's what readers want to know about, you know, the things that are gone. Yeah. And it, it was overwhelming. It was the streetcars. You should have seen that seven corners, which was literally seven corners, and all the streetcars came together and all the wires hanging overhead. How did they get through that, you know? And you've got a wonderful couple of scenes in your book about streetcars, right? Right. My old friend, he's gone now. Stan West wrote a wonderful book about when they bring the streetcars back. It's another novel. But he said it in the 50s. His father worked for the streetcars. That's how I got to know Stan. But he he was just a fountain of information on streetcars. Oh, wow. Well, I want to ask you about something else as well. I, I do remember reading the interviews that you gave to the Pioneer Press back then. For some reason, they just stuck in my mind. I was just so personally inspired by the fact that you wrote this book while working in a parking ramp. It was just amazing, <laughs> you know? So I, I, I still I still remember some of these interviews that you gave, but I remember you talking about how how much difficulty you had getting this book published as well, because you were an unpublished oh, yeah. author at this time. Can you can you talk about that journey to actually getting your book into print and getting some critical well, acclaim for it, it, it? It didn't get into print. I had to do that myself. But uh, I think I started. Let's see. I actually finished the book about eighty six. And I didn't send anything out until I was really done with the book. I felt really comfortable with it. So I started sending them out to New York publishers uh, probably in uh, 1986. And uh, even to this day, uh, between New York publishers, uh, New York agents, small presses, university presses, any kind of agents, I could I could show you 40 rejection slips. Uh, most of them were... Uh, uh, letter form, form letters, uh, just the standard stuff you get there. But uh, I couldn't get anybody interested in it. Um, finally, uh, I remember I remember her name, Hilary Heinzman, W.W. W. Norton, an editor, sent me a letter, and I, I expected another rejection slip, and I opened it up, and she started telling me about the opening of the book and how I had to change this or that to make, you know, pull the reader in like that. And it kind of hit me by a shock. My, this, this, this New York editor is actually talking to me. <laughs> Somebody actually read the book. And uh, so this has been almost two years had been going on. And I made some of the changes that she had asked for. And I, I sent it into her again. And uh, in the end, she rejected the book as it was too local. Like I heard that a lot, you know, too bad it's not in Chicago or anything like that. You know, nobody's going to buy, nobody wanna, nobody's going to want to read a gangster book about St. Paul, Minnesota, you know, you like reading about, <laughs> reading about drug dealers in Apple Valley, you know, <laughs> nobody wants to, I'm sure there are drug dealers in Apple Valley, but you know, New York City kind of steals the thunder. So finally, I said, this had been going on for two years and when she rejected it, I was heartbroken. I was just running out of places to send it. So, uh. You got to remember, Eric. Back then, this is all before the internet, uh, even before uh, 
you know, personal computers were just coming online, that kind of stuff. Um, back then, self-publishing, you had a contract with a printer, and they print the book, and then they drop it off at your front door, and then you sell it. So I had a raise. I think it was thirteen thousand dollars, which today is a lot of money, but back then it was it was a ton of money. So I raised it with uh, family members mostly, and we contracted. My plan, you know, Eric was to print 250 books and give them away to family and friends and call it quits because I told everybody I was writing a book and I had to produce a book. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that was the original plan, just to print the 250, give them away to family and friends, and you know, say, okay, I wrote a book, that's it. But uh, once in the old days, in the old printing presses, once you started printing them, the price goes down. So there wasn't much difference between... 250 books and 1,000 books. So our idea, consulting with my sister and brother-in-law, well, why don't we do the 1,000 books and try and sell them? So that's what happens. Um, you know, Eric, my novel, The Weatherman, Yeah. my editor called me when it went over a million in sales, 1 million sales. That was a big deal. Yeah. I don't know what I don't know what 1 million books looks like. But I can tell you what 1,000 hardcover books looks like when they drop it off in your driveway. <laughs> that, and $13,000 in debt, you know. And uh, uh, that's what happened. And then I took it. Jeez, uh, I was so ignorant back then there, Eric. So much of what I did was out of ignorance. Um, I really took it around to the old bookstores. Uh, most of them are gone. No Hungry Mind Bookstore, Odegaard's there on Grand Avenue in St. Paul. Yeah. And... Uh, Ask them if they wanted to buy my book, <laughs> that kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> but they, they all steered me toward a distributor in town. There used to be a distributor over there in North, North Minneapolis in the warehouse district there. I think it's condominiums now. But I found my way over there, and the guy bought like, uh, he was paging through it, and he bought like 30 books. He says, 30 books? I've got a 1,000 books. The distributor wants 30. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was really... It was really heartbreaking. But at the same time, I was sending it out to all the uh, columnists and all the TV stations and the radio stations in town. Uh, I wasn't getting any bites there. So I'm sitting here with my 1,000 hardcover books and, you know, 30 books at the distributor, and none of them are in the bookstores and that kind of thing like that. <clears throat> and then uh, Don Boxmeyer at the old Pioneer Press called me, and uh, I said, because all these people I'm talking about are gone now. <laughs> But Don had read it. Uh, I'd sent it to Marianne Grossman at the Pioneer Press. Marianne's still around. And she walked it up to Don Boxmeyer to see if it was something he was interested in. And uh, he called me up and said he just loved the book and he wanted to do a column on it. And we talked for a while. And uh, he wrote a column on the book. And the next day, phone was ringing off a hook. The distributor wanted more books. <laughs> and then uh, CCO Radio called, and I got an interview on CCO Radio. So those were the only two interviews I really got with Don Boxmart at the Pioneer Press and uh, I think it was Tim Russell at WCCO. But I went through my 1,000 books just on that kind of publicity and uh, word of mouth was really good. I can't emphasize how important that was. People talking about the book, that's not something you can control. No, no, definitely not. Word of mouth is is, the, yeah. is so important. Yeah, I, 
Don Boxmeyer was a great guy. I remember when I when I was doing the the tours, he um, did an article on me too, and we right. we kind of drove around together and visited some of the sites in person. He was a great guy. It's so cool to hear that he he was able to help you with this thing. He did. He took a lot of the writers under his wing. Besides me, Vince Flynn. He was a big supporter of Vince Flynn going early on. So he had this collection of writers he was always keeping in touch with, and he would call up and say. Hey, you know, this wasn't your typical reporter. He'd call up and say, Steve, I want to help. What can I do? You know, <laughs> that's not something you expect from a reporter. But he was a columnist. He'd call it the rah-rah end of the business. Yeah. So that was great. But anyway, after that, you know, we went through our 1,000 books. But, but Eric, I didn't have any money because, you know, you can't make money on those 1,000. It's a loss because I can't price them to make money. They'd have to be, I think, books back, hardcovers back then were going around $16, $17. Yeah. In order to get my money back, I'd have to price it at $25, $26, and nobody's going to buy a $25, $26 novel back then. So you had to price them competitively, but you lose money. So after my 1,000 books were gone, um, you know, they wanted more books, but I didn't have any money to print more books. So <laughs> that's where I was. I want uh, Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, no, it just says Al Isley, an old Pioneer Press Con living in Washington, D.C. He had heard about the book through word of mouth. And uh, he had started his own public relations firm. And uh, he called me up out of the blue, and we met at the Lex out there for lunch because he used to be back at the – he was a friend of Don Boxmeyer's back in the old 60s. They were reporters at the Pioneer Press. And uh, he got together, and we got the idea of doing a paperback version, you know, 10,000 paperbacks, how much that would cost. So the two of us, I borrowed more money, and – he pooled his money. You know what I always tell people, young writers or publishers who always talk to me about self-publishing? You know what the difference between self-publishing and a small press is? What? In self-publishing, you're doing it yourself. In a small press, there's two of you. <laughs> <laughs> that's the difference. <laughs> D- 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 double the double the manpower though. Yeah, yeah, we doubled the manpower. Of that so we put out a paperback edition. That's the one that did so successful. We went through uh, we went through ten thousand in less than three months, and then we ordered another ten thousand. And if you're selling those kind of paperbacks in one small market in the Midwest, that got New York's attention. And uh, short story, I was working at CCO by this time. I took a job at uh, I left the parking business. I used the same mud to get a job at CCO TV. I was doing I was doing an internship with the I team when the phone started ringing. Al had been talking to these people. Al Isley. Oh, I think it was uh, Doubleday and Random House, and then Viking Penguin. It wasn't a bidding war. I wish it were, but as I remember, Doubleday. Oh, I one other thing I got to tell you. The New York publishers, once they read St. Mud, the paperback that we put out and the one that was selling so well, they all said the same thing. And I tell this to writers at writers' conferences. They all say the same thing. Does he have something else that we can read? Oh, you know? yeah. And I said, you know, I'd, I'd been working on this novel about a TV weatherman on trial for murder. And I said, well, I think if you can stall him for six weeks, I might be able to put together the first 100 pages. And uh, that was the weatherman. And uh, as it turned out, he stalled them. I got the 100 pages done, and then we sent it off. And as I remember it, Doubleday wanted the weatherman, but they didn't want St. Mud. Uh, I think Random House wanted St. Mud, but they didn't want the weatherman. 
<laughs> and then uh, Al Silverman came along from Viking Penguin. He'd come out of retirement to join Viking Penguin and find new authors. And he had uh, he wanted both books, hardcover and paperback. So it was no question about who was. I signed with Viking Penguin there. So in those early days, it was coming out like it was self-published in 1988, small press in 1990, and then the Viking Penguin hardcover edition came out in 1992, and then a Penguin paperback came out. Signet paperback came out two years after that. So this book was coming out every two years. <laughs> wow. Five years there. And the rest of this is history. And then the, I followed up with the weatherman a couple of years later. The cover art for St. Mud, what did it look like originally? Boy, this book's had more covers than Gone with the Wind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I don't know if I have it down here or not. I'm down here in the office area. I've got it. Hey, there it is, standing right in front of it. I, I, I had it. You remember this is so. I'm not an artist, Eric. I can't draw stick men, so, uh, and I couldn't afford to hire a designer. And I thought, so, why don't we just keep it simple? We'll put a black cover with white lettering. And uh, I think, I think the printer decided, why don't we turn the S red? You know, to represent blood. And a big, big red S, and then Saint Mud, a novel of gangsters and saints. So it's really simple, yeah. But it's it's kind of cool looking. Now it's a classic. Because remember those one thousand I printed, right? Now now they're classics. Everybody's looking for those. The collectors are looking for those. Seriously, because that that that's really the first edition. Because there were only one thousand of them. A lot of people think the Viking Penguin hardcover is the first edition, but it's not. It's actually the third. So I've only got I've only got two two copies myself, personal ones, you know. Except at the time I couldn't give them away, but then now <laughs> every once in a while when I go to a book signing, people will come up with one they found flea market or something like that. They recognized it right away as you know valuable. Well, valuable my my standards. Sure. I think last time I checked, they were worth like two hundred fifty, three hundred dollars. Wow, that's amazing! I need, now I need to get my hands on one. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, like I said, you got to remember that uh, the original self-published one. There were one thousand twenty-five books, uh, literally. There, so the cover that I have on my hardcover, which I remember picking up in the early nineties, and I think it's the same cover. It's just gorgeous. It looks like a nineteen thirties. It, it looks like Alan Ladd, and uh, I think it's the Viking one. I think it was based on the Alan Ladd Veronica Lake old gangster movie. Okay. The shadow of a gangster in the background. Yes. It's got the old 30s movie style to it. A film noir. Yeah, that's it's a just classic. Stunning. I love it. Yeah. It's, it's my favorite, too. And it's got the gangster with the, the Tommy gun standing behind him there. Yeah, the, the shadow. Yep. Yeah. Somebody told me, I think the, the movie was called Night in the City with Alan Ladd and uh, Veronica Lake. Oh. Old classic film noir. Interesting. Yeah, it's that really well done. The, yeah, really inspired. And and the book itself, you know, the printing, because in St. Mud, I tried to keep, it, it, it was a newspaper, so I have newspaper columns, I have newspaper headlines and everything like that, and that's hard to do for printers, you know, stop the story here, put in a headline, that kind of stuff there. But they did a really wonderful job. So, you know, as far as I could recommend, the Viking Penguin hardcover is probably the best edition for reading the book for being laid out the way I wanted it laid out. Yeah. Where I had a hand in it, you know? Yeah. So I, I, I do that. I do one one other story, kind of a uh, quick one. It, it has to do with getting published. Sure. Cause I tell writers this all the time. 
Oh, remember that hundred pages I wrote, and and um, they had Saint Mud in the hundred pages. Al Silverman, he was the Al is still around. He's in his nineties now, but uh, at that time he he ran a sporting magazine for like nineteen years. He had a sports background, and then he was president of the Book of the Month Club for nineteen years, and then he retired, and he came out of retirement. And one joined Viking Penguin as a managing editor, and one of his jobs was to find new writers. And he was having lunch on Martha's Vineyard with David McCullough, the historian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Al was telling him about his new job at Viking Penguin and finding new writers. And David McCullough said to him, "Well, you ought to talk to Al Isley about this gangster novel he's got his hands on." Oh, wow. And, and like I said, two weeks later, but like I tell writers, you know, at the writers groups, um, what is that luck? What is that? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm working in parking ramps in St. Paul, Minnesota, and my fate's being decided by these two guys having lunch on Martha's Vineyard. You know, <laughs> I have no control. And remember all those books I sent out and all uh, trying to get published the manuscripts. Yeah. I never sent it to any of these people. You know, the people who finally signed with me, I had never sent them anything. You know, they found it through word of mouth. So I don't know if that's fate, if that's luck, but I know the one thing that I did right, I put the book out there. Yeah. Those 1,000, then the press, you know, I got people talking about it. You, you got to put your work out there. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you got to take a chance, right? Yeah. Like I said, some things you can control and some things you just can't control. You know, Don Boxmar getting the book, you know, I didn't send it to Don. I sent it to Marion Grossman, you know. <laughs> I didn't send it to these guys there. I didn't know this guy come out of retirement or who he was or anything like that, you know. Yeah. I, I gotta ask you, you you've already alluded to it. There is a very iconic, incredibly well written, attention grabbing opening passage at the beginning of book one having to do <laughs> with the grassy knoll in front of the cathedral. <laughs> yeah. That took some real guts, I have to say, to open a book with something so graphic. But but I, I loved it and I still do. Did you did you receive any criticism or any criticism? No, one guy called it the best opening line, the best opening line in American literature. Um, <laughs> you don't know, Eric, when you put the book out there, what people are going to hit on, what they're going to talk about. In almost every one of my books, people hit on something in the leper. It was a, a flagpole sitter, a mime sitting on top of a flagpole. You know, he's just a minor character, but he was haunting this school out in the mine. And that's what they hit on. In St. Mud, it was a sex scene in front of the cathedral. And uh, as I told you earlier, I was up at that, that, that gangster display, and I just came back to my parking booth, and I picked up my pen. And uh, after seeing all these photographs, and I wrote that first line of the book, and then I added a scene to a sex scene in front of the cathedral of St. Paul, I knew even back then the problem was how do you convince people that St. Paul, Minnesota was once as bad or worse than Chicago? Yeah. And the way I was going to do it was I was going to write the book down and dirty. This is what it's going to, from the opening page, I'm going to suck you into the book. This book's going to be written down and dirty. That's the way it's going to be. You know, there's nothing glorified about these criminals. They kill people. Most of them have venereal disease. Everything. It was intentional. That that scene was intentional, and it set the tone of the book. Oh, it that, did, this yeah. Is, yeah. This is what kind of book this is going to be. This is about drunken newspaper reporters, corrupt cops, gangster moles, you know, murdering gangsters. You know, it's not going to be the fluffy version of the gangsters. 
I, I loved it, but I, I always wondered what, if there was maybe some uptight Lutheran <laughs> what woman out there who might have, no. you know what I mean, given you a hard time about it. Do you but, remember uh, Archbishop John Roach? Yeah. The Archbishop of St. Paul? He had uh, He had a reputation for criticizing movies and books that weren't up to his Catholic standards, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And uh, my small press editor, Al Isley, was a involved in the Catholic Church, and they're all Catholics. And he says, hey, I got an idea. We'll send it to Archbishop Roach. He'll hate it. He'll make a public statement against it or something. We'll get some free publicity. So I packed up a book. I sent it off to Archbishop Roach at the St. Paul Cathedral there. And uh, a couple weeks later, I, got a, I, got a, I still have it here. It's in the footlocker there, Eric. It's a little letter from Archbishop Roach. He says, well... Steve, I wouldn't give it my blessing, but I enjoyed it very much. <laughs> I said, "Wow, oh, that's really a nice. It's really a nice letter." But I said, "Damn, there goes our publicity." You know, so if it was cool with the Archbishop, you know, it seemed to be cool with me. So, oh yeah, no, I, it's it's one of those scenes that I'm sure even people years and years and years later, you know, remember that that opening passage. It's just yeah, it just hits knew you so hard. Thought, if people knew how little thought went into the writing of it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like I said, it was just a gut thing. <clears throat> yeah. The other thing that surprised me about that scene, because when I was writing and I was going to write it down and dirty, and this is a guy's book, I'm writing this book for guys, you know, and then, like I said, I was all new to the business, and then you start going to book sales, and there's, there's all these women standing in line, you know, he says, you know, I didn't know women would like the book as much as they did. <laughs> and then I found out basically the fiction market is basically a women's market. You know, they control the market. Maybe 60, 70 percent of fiction readers are women, you know. Well, there's lots but, of ro- romance in the in the book. That doesn't surprise yeah. me. It's just like this is my, my thinking at the time of writing is that this is a guy's book, you know, and, and I don't guess the girls like guys' books or something. But it, it, I do remember being surprised by that, and I was surprised by the, re, the reaction of Catholics seemed to take to the book, too, and I think it had to do with all the saints in it and the big church up there on the hill and everything like that and all the crime and corruption going on beneath the cathedral and the capital. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to ask you about, about a handful of characters in the book. Okay. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel of urine! Cat 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. You know what? Where the inspiration for the character came from, what what you like most about them, and I I want to start with your would you I don't know if you'd call him a hero or an anti-hero, uh, Gro- Grover Mudd. Yeah, what an amazing character he is! It was genius to not to automatically go to you know a police officer as the hero of your book, but instead to a newspaper reporter. Yeah, I did the same thing with the weatherman. I used a journalist too. That's kind of a no-no in the publishing business because. Uh, Reporters are always the bad guys in the movies and television. You know, <laughs> you know, they're always up to no good that yeah. kind of thing. But uh, when I was writing it, and I started, remember at this time, Eric, cause I, I never took a writing class. You know, I was trained as an actor, and so I was teaching myself how to write a novel. And and I, you know, I read enough good books to know this wasn't a good book, and I tear it down and start over again, and then I tear it down and start over again. And then I had enough nerve to show it to a high school friend of mine. And uh, I showed him the first 30 pages or something like that. And I got together with him. He said, it's good, but you got to give this guy some character. He's got no character. I want this guy spitting up blood. <laughs> and I'm driving home. I'm driving home after this. Why would the guy be spitting up blood, you know? And that's when it hit me, the World War things, World yeah. War One and being gassed and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then in my research, I came across a little bit about Thomas Boyd from St. Paul, who was a friend of Escott Fitzgerald, who was gassed during the war, won a lot of medals and came home coughing up his guts there, took a job at the old Daily News. Fitzgerald helped him get his book published, his first book, Through the Wheat. And it was just a little paragraph on that guy that, oh, it's kind of the inspiration from Grover Mudd. So those two things came together. The other thing, Eric, when I write, I have to see the guy's face in my head. Yeah. So I use real people or... Sometimes movie stars, not as much, but I, I I have to have a vision in my head. And one of the problems I had with Grover is I couldn't get a vision of him. What what does this guy look like? You know, what's his facial features? And then the gangster, it just it just hit me right over the head. I turned to the picture, and there was a picture of John Dillinger, who was a really good-looking guy. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, that's him. That's Grover Mudd. He looks like John Dillinger. And I thought, I think there's a line in the book. Hey, Grover, this guy looks like you when they put the wanted poster for John Dillinger. It yeah. Was his, yeah. 
he looks like you, Grover. <laughs> you know? So once I had that picture, I would prop the picture of John Dillinger right in front of me, and that was Grover Mudd. That's what he physically looked like. Oh, that must have been interesting for people uh, passing through the, the parking ramp to see the picture of John Dillinger. <laughs> <laughs> he was in no, well, when I was writing at home, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't take his picture to work with me, but I did have a lot of research. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing. There's old actor's trick I would do, you know, like uh, – I had a character uh, in The Weatherman who had emphysema, an old cop, retired cop. He had emphysema. They called him the Marlboro Man. He smoked Marlboros. So whenever I'm, whenever I'm writing The Weatherman, I got a pack of Marlboros sitting on my desk. I take out a cigarette and stick it in my mouth whenever I was writing his scene. You know, <laughs> people, people thought I smoked for a while. <laughs> I, had a stick, I had a cigarette dangling from my mouth. You know, but those are just old actor's tricks. You know, but they help me visualize. If I can see. And I used my stepfather for that character in, in, in The Weatherman because I, I just got to see the face. It doesn't go their personality or their personal history. It has nothing to do with that. You know, we've never met Eric in person, but, if, you know, if I saw you in person, yeah, I could borrow your face for our character, that kind of stuff like that. Yeah. You probably wouldn't know it, but that's the face I had in mind. Right. So another character that, I, that was very, very moving in the story was a woman named Stormy Day. Mm-hmm. You seem to have a like a special affection for her. W- would you say that that's true? Yeah, it was very personal because uh, my girlfriend in California was a black girl, and that's where I got her from—the the hair, the figure, everything like that—and and the way she talked. She had a way of speaking, uh, the draw, the way she drawled out her words. You know, you could hear the voice and everything, and. Uh, so I used her for that. So that was very personal. But the other thing was putting a black woman in a 1930s gangster book, yeah. you know, because they were invisible back then. And, you know, I think when he meets her, he's standing there right next to her waiting for an elevator. And she's standing right there and he's just paying her no attention because she's a black woman. He's not going to strike up a conversation or anything like that with her. So, yeah, even my editor, Al Silverman, he said, yeah, he loved that. He loved that character, you know. She had a kind of a tragic fate to her. You know, something bad might be happening to her somehow. Yeah. So that was all that dread was always hanging over her. So, yeah, that one was very personal. And like I said, once because I, I could see this woman, uh, this California girl, I could see her in my head and I could hear her voice and that kind of thing. So that came pretty easy to me. Uh, I ripped her off good, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, so. The- the other person that I, I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about him, I'm sure you've heard people mention him over the years, is, is Officer Emil Gunderson. Emil Gunderson? Emil Gunderson, sorry. Um, yeah, is that Emil, yeah? Yeah, he, one of the creepiest bad guys. Uh, but most, most, most of the kids latch on to Homer Van Meter. He was creepier than Emil. But he was uh, he was real, and you made up this character of, of Gunderson, right? Gunderson was made up, and he was expanded... There wasn't a lot of rewriting. There was a lot of editing for the Viking Penguin edition. Things were added. But Al Silverman, because when I went to New York, we took the self-published hardcover, literally broke the back of the book, ripped off the cover, and he used it as a manuscript, and that's the way he wanted to work. Because i got to remember, the original self-published edition was never professionally edited. It's full of typos. It's full of grammar mistakes. It, it you're, I think one of the reading things that made it was so powerful is you were reading what I wrote. It was raw, yeah. you know. So when I got into New York there with Al, 
and he broke it down and said, we'll use this as a manuscript, and he went through, you know, you know, they'll have a professional proofreader do the grammar and everything, but he wanted certain characters, and he liked this motorcycle cop, Gunderson. He wanted a couple more scenes with this Gunderson character, and I said, okay, so I had to enlarge a couple of scenes to make him bigger than he was in the original self-published edition, but uh, so when you read it, yeah, he came, he was more full of life there, and more part of the story. Okay, so I so I do now want to ask you about Homer Van Meter and the whole idea of interweaving real people, historical characters with a fictional story. Was yeah. was that difficult? Uh, it was very difficult when I started it. I was trying to keep all the facts straight and keep all the people straight and all the names straight, and then it dawned on me, well, then you're not writing a novel, you're writing a history book. And it was kind of flat, and it wasn't too exciting. If you throw all that away and and make it fiction, okay, I'm writing a novel, anything can happen. What happens is what I say happens. You know, I'm in charge. So it was a change of attitude in my writing. But one of the decisions I made was to fictionalize the good guys. It's a, it's a novel of gangsters and saints. Fictionalize all the saints and keep all the gangsters real because people knew John Dillinger was people knew who Babyface Nelson was and machine gun Kelly, you know, I can't make up better names than those. So I also thought, you know, how can you slander a dead gangster? You know, it's not possible. <laughs> Legally, it's not possible. What I didn't know until the book came out is that some of their families were still alive. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I heard from them, but actually most of them were quite thrilled to know that they had a gangster in the family. I know that there are descendants of Homer Van Meter. Did you hear from them? I uh, It might have been the Van Meter family. I remember one of them was quite curious about the shootout where he was killed through a Sears building is next to the Capitol. Yeah. Back then, it was just a scuzzy neighborhood. They got him in an alley back there. And this, I, I don't know. I remember him yelling at me about I didn't get the facts right. And I'm saying, sir, it's a novel. Sir, it's a novel. You know? <laughs> You know, yes, Van Meter's real, but the cops are fictional, that kind of stuff. He wanted me to include the real names of the real cops and that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I did hear from them. And I heard from people, uh, children of police officers who were police back then, grandchildren of police, that kind of thing. So, I did. But Homer Van Meter, to me, he was the sleaziest. In my research, he was the sleaziest person I came across. He was dying from syphilis at the same time, you know, um, so, yeah, he was a real creep. <laughs> For some reason, when I started speaking at high schools and stuff, it really shocked me that the teachers were letting their kids in high school read St. Mud, you know, because I was, remember shocked the first time some kids from North St. Paul came to a book signing and they brought their book reports. And I said, oh, my God, people are doing book reports on my books. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Poor kids, you know. But they showed me their A's and their B's. and they, But all the kids seemed to like Homer Van Meter, you know. Oh. That's the character. That's the character that they latched on to. It's it's pretty brilliant that you you picked him as as a major character for the reasons you just mentioned. John Dillinger is it's so easy to find information on him. Babyface Nelson, but Homer Van Meter is like the the, the perfect character to kind of expand yeah, upon. Not a, he, he wasn't a household name. Not a lot of people knew him, so I, I had more room to play with him to uh, do what I wanted to do with him. How about the the Barker Carpus gang? Well, they were pretty scuzzy, and they spent a lot of time in St. Paul and uh, outside St. Just outside in the Montemedi area. Yeah, and uh, I kind of moved them around, but there was a lot of information on them. But they they were they were kind of the classic gang. I mean, get in the car, 
running shootouts and that kind of thing like that. You know, it wasn't too hard to write about them because Jesus, the things they did, you know, you could do almost anything with them. Yeah, and I and I do remember you you do cover the South St. Paul the Swift payroll robbery. The, yeah, yeah. My uh, father worked for Swifts. And as a little boy, I remember going down Concord Avenue to pick them up, and the smells and the sounds and the sights, they were just overwhelming. And uh, so when I started research in the 80s, you know, all that was gone by then. And I think they even had rerouted Concord Street because I'm looking at the old photographs of the old post office robbery. Well, this doesn't make sense. And apparently they rerouted Concord Street to go behind the building in front of it. So I had to kind of play with that around. But the building is still down there now in South St. Paul. And uh, some of the family, those policemen that are killed, they're still around, too, because I heard from them. Interesting. Yeah. So you've already talked a little bit about The Weatherman. Do, mm -hmm. You were inspired to write that book while you were working at WCCO? Yeah. Well, I had, take, I had, I had an interest in television news, but the only thing I knew about television news is what I saw in the Mary Tyler Moore show. So I thought there must be more to it. <laughs> You know, just in watching it day in and day out. So I had used the, uh, I had used St. Mud almost as a, as a, as a resume. I sent it off to him at CCO and, uh, John Lindsay on the I team offered me an internship there and that got me into the door. And then I was the overnight dispatcher for a year and then I was a, a dispatcher on the assignment desk, which is a perfect place to view the newsroom operation. It's on an elevated desk overlooking the entire news operation, and everything goes through the assignment desk. So as a writer, I mean, it was just a great place to watch the goings-on. But like I said, I was just playing with that until, you know, these publishers came along and said they want, does he have something else that he can read? I said, ooh, I better get to work on this book seriously. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I was at CCO working on The Weatherman. I think it was four years I spent on uh, on The Weatherman. You know, after I finished St. Mud, and it was four years, 82 to 86, the actual writing and the research, I said I'd never do a historical piece again, but there was too much research. I was looking forward to doing The Weatherman because there'd be less research contemporary. Yeah, I spent five years on The Weatherman. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a wonderful book, though. I've, I've read it. I, I love it. I mean... Nothing. Nothing will will beat Saint Mud for me. But that's <laughs> uh, how many of my fans Saint Mud is still their favorite book. It really surprises me. You know, a lot of them it's the Weatherman, but uh, a lot of them go right to Saint Mud. You know, and it, it's as a writer, sometimes it's hard to accept that. Hey, maybe your first book is going to be the, the, your best book. <laughs> you know, you like to think you get better and better and better and better, but it doesn't always work that way. So, so I'd like to talk to you about the sequel to St. Mud that I want you to write? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so without giving too much away, your your story kind of ends with Grover Mudd, as you've, you've mentioned, isn't doing too well physically at the end of the story. And I, th I think he, he kind of asks for, in the last few passages, 18 more months to live for... You want, yeah, he wanted to live 18 months. Can you, can you give him those 18 months? Did you read Silent Snow, Eric? You know, I Grover haven't... Yeah. Grover comes back then. What happened, I had two characters, Grover Mudd from St. Mudd and Rick Beanblossom, who was the uh, burn victim hero in, in The Weatherman. Those were my like my two main characters. And Al Silverman, when we were talking about a third book, oh. he says, I got an idea. Why don't you combine the two in one book? 
And they said, well, how, how could you get 1930s gangsters and, you know, 1990s television news into one book? That was the challenge there. So, yeah, Grover Mudd does pick up, and I think it does, oh, boy, I've heard this St. Lyons, but it does end with his, his demise in Silent Snow. Okay. So the way to tie them together was the Lindbergh kidnapping. So Silent Snow deals with the child's kidnapping. Oh. St. Paul. How did I miss that? Uh, you got a book to catch up on. You catch up on <laughs> Silent Snow. So yeah, it flashes back. It opens up with in in television news in the 1990s when the when uh one of the ransom bills, which were very they were gold certificates. They're not too hard to spot. When a rare ransom bill shows up in St. Paul, and Rick Rick starts looking in how did how did this how did this bill from the Lindbergh kidnapping end up in St. Paul, and then it flashes back to the Lindbergh kidnapping. And its connection to Minnesota. What, what about a prequel to Saint Maud? Uh, people had talked about that, but you know, you're, you're getting into one of these things, and it, quite frankly, it hurt my career. I'm not one of these guys who writes the same character over and over again. Sure, sure. I probably should have been. It's more financially rewarding. But my thing was, I went from 1930s gangsters to uh, television news to the Lindbergh kidnapping to. Uh, the history of leprosy, all different characters, new subjects, different things. It's hard for publishers to market you that way because not only do they know they don't know what's coming next, they don't know when it's coming next. So that's always been a challenge for me. So writing Grover Mudd over and over again probably didn't interest me. Writing, you know, they want to do the same thing with the Rick Bean Blossom character and the Weatherman. It wasn't something that interested me. I always like creating new characters. I was always about the characters, you know. Uh, you can get into an argument, is it the story or the characters? I've always argued it's the characters. If you create a good character, the readers will follow them anywhere. And that's why, And I, a lot of that comes out of my actor's background. I really believe in, in strong characters. Yeah. I mean, you've written many books um, since St. Mud, all well-received and critically acclaimed. Is this a weird question? What book are you most proud of from, from recent, recent years? The, the book I'm out in recent years are all of them together. I would say in recent years I'm most proud of The Leper, and it never got the publication it deserved. And it's something about the subject of leprosy I didn't realize to this day is so off-putting, but I think it's one of my probably St. Mud and The Leper are probably the best written books. I think uh, I'm most proud of I'm most proud of St. Mud because I had to self-publish, because of the story of getting it published that goes with it, because it's my first book, because I was teaching myself how to write. I was more involved in St. Mud than any of my other books. You know, we went together. You know, I started writing it in 1982, Eric, and in, in 1992, 10 years later, I was going over the final proofs for the Viking Penguin edition for St. Mud. So that was 10 years on one book. Wow. You know, till I got the New York publication. So that's the one I'm most proud of. But the one most recently is The Leper, which is out in trade paperback and now in ebook form. But it also opens up in St. Paul uh, with a World War I veteran who contracted leprosy while serving in World War I. And then it goes down to Louisiana, to a leper colony there. And then he ends up on the famous leper colony in Molokai and becomes the sheriff. So, yeah. St. Mud and the Leper are the two ones I'm most proud of. Well, I can't wait. I'm going to go out today and pick up Silent Snow, and I'm going to pick up the Leper as well. Um, mm -hmm. Where can people learn more about 
you and your work? Today, today, most of my business was Amazon. I mean, that's just the way the publishing business works these days. Uh, you're probably not going to find them at the local bookstores. Uh, most of my business is with Amazon today. What we've been doing, Eric, is we, I bought back the rights to all of my books. So I'm one of the few writers that controls the publication of all my books. And what we've done, we have a writer's group here in, in Minnesota. Uh, we've been putting them out one a year. We've done the wheat field and uh, we've done the leper. And we we're hoping to do St. Mud next year, but what we're doing is putting them out in e-books and in trade paperbacks, which is the large paperbacks. And it gets very technical, but uh, the technology has changed so much. You know, e-book sales were once nothing. <laughs> you know, now yeah. they're very important. And the trade paperback now, they have what they call print-on-demand right now. In the old days, remember, I had to pimp those, you know, you had a 250 minimum. Because once they start rolling those presses, you've got to print X amount of books there. But today they have print-on-demand. If you want one book, they'll print one book. And if you want 25 books, they'll print 25. And if you want 2,000, they'll print 2,000. And and they can do it, you know, in a matter of days, if not hours. So that's changed things. So with these new trade paperbacks that we're putting out one at a time, uh, most of them are being sold through Amazon. So that's mostly where people can find my books now is I steer them towards Amazon and we're, we're, we're negotiating a deal. We may be going exclusive with Amazon as far as the eBooks go and maybe down the road for the trade paperbacks. And uh, like I said, that's, that's just the way book sales are going, Yeah. but it's hard for us older writers to accept. Cause when you say it, when I say exclusive to Amazon, that means it's the only place that you can buy them on Amazon or in an Amazon-owned bookstore. And for an older writer, it's kind of hard to accept the fact that your book's not going to be in the local bookstore. Sure. But uh, the difference in royalties is incredible. So uh, that's stuff down the road. But that's what we're doing now. Like I said, we're, just, uh, we're trying to do a book a year, and I'm hoping maybe St. Mud in 2019 we can get the trade paperback. But some of the older versions, like the one you like, they can be found on Amazon. And it looks like uh, The Lepers has just been released as an ebook, right? Yeah, it's on ebook and it's in that trade paperback. If you want the trade paperback there, and uh, they, uh, it's called Conquil Press, like I said. But we're putting them out one at a time here. And people can learn all about you at, at stevethayer.com. dot com. Yeah, I've got the website. I haven't looked at it lately, but apparently a lot of people do. I get a little notice about how many people look at your website there. I should go back and check it once in a while. I'm not a. Uh, <laughs> I don't like reading about myself or looking at my old photographs or that kind of stuff, you know. So I don't spend a lot of time there. But yeah, I've got the website up there, and uh, I just joined. I just joined uh, Facebook like uh, a year and a half ago, two years, less than two years. I've been on Facebook, and uh, I got like, like I said, all the social media stuff is new to me. I'm not on Twitter. I don't understand all that stuff. But like on on Facebook, I have like I have 12 friends, 12 family members, and 350 strangers. So. <laughs> As a rule, you know, as the writers, we don't say no to anybody, you know, and so you get a lot of weird people there, but uh, <laughs> I can be found there. I want to know, is has there ever been any chat about St. Mud as a television show or a, a, a movie? movie? Yeah. It's been optioned. St. Mud's been optioned uh, twice by the movies. You know what an option is there, Eric? Yes, I do, yes. They, they basically rent the rights for you, you know us for a year or two see if we can make the movie we'll pay you and if 
If it doesn't get made in the movie, you get the rights back. So it's been optioned twice. And the two uh, books that have drawn the most movie interest are The Wheatfield and St. Mud. Uh, those are the ones that have gotten the most interest. Those are the ones that I, me and my agent are personally pushing. I, you know, they've got, when you read them, they've got the more cinematic feel to them. You right. can see this as a movie. It has a less few of the channels. So, yeah, I've had five movie options. But in each case, you know, I got the rights back after it didn't get made into a movie. Right. So uh, just uh, I had a deal. I thought I was up to California two years ago. We were dealing with the wheat field, but the deal fell through, you know. So the whole movie business, you know, and I, I, you know, I graduated from acting school out there. I spent five years bouncing around Hollywood. So it's not like I don't know the business. But there's no rhyme or reason to it, Eric. It drives you crazy. (laughs) Because uh, when is the last time you saw a bad movie, Eric? (laughs) <laughs> uh, recently, you know, yeah, yeah. Recently, like yesterday, the day before, you know, you go to see all these bad movies, and you've got eight books that are really good stories. You know, it would make really good stuff, and it says it just drives you crazy. Yeah, but it's 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 like it's like throwing dice. I don't know, flip of the coin, who gets made and who don't. Right, it doesn't have anything to do with sales. It has nothing to do with quality. Uh, just got interest. Somebody just keep at it. Exactly. Well, well, thank you so much for your time. Okay, this has been fun. This has been another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. Back with a new episode soon. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.